0: All right, let's dive in. We are in Mark chapter 12. Uh, We are in verses 22 through 30. And uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Dustin. I'm the pastor teacher here at River Bible Church. And we study the Bible verse by verse. And we want you to experience God verse by verse this morning for the sole purpose of uh, learning who Jesus is. And then also for those of you who have walked with Jesus, that you would share Jesus day by day. So our, our mission here at River Bible Church is to experience God verse by verse so that we can share Jesus day by day. So with that, if you need a Bible, hey, we want to give one to you. It's the best-selling book of all time, and it's, it's free. It's, very, it's right there in the back. So we want to make sure that you have that. I also have my notes in the foyer if you would like to follow along uh, with my notes. Well, let me review here as you turn to Matthew chapter 12. Several Sundays ago, we saw how Jesus was teaching. He was preaching in a local synagogue, and the scribes and the Pharisees, they set a trap for Jesus. Now, this trap, it was, it was sad, and it was pathetic. It was really especially cruel. There was a man with a disabled hand sitting in the front row. And it was a trap because the scribes and the Pharisees, they knew how compassionate Jesus was. These men have have saw, they've, they've seen Jesus heal many people. The trap was not whether Jesus was going to heal this man, though. They knew he was going to do that. The trap was whether the, he was going to heal him on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath day. Healing on the Sabbath day was not a violation of Old Testament law. However, it was a violation of their law. It was man's made law. It was, it was a man made rule to try and please God. So Jesus did, and he healed the man. He healed him completely and fully. Uh, I, I don't know about you guys, but when I get to heaven, I, I, I can't wait to rent this DVD. <laughs> I want to see it happen. I do amazing the way that that happens. He said, stretch out your arm. And the guy's like, I, I can't, I got, oh, wow. There it is. (laughs) Praise God. I can't wait to see that. So this man, so Jesus heals this man who was probably a beggar, but now he can provide for his family. He can, uh, he can make a living. He is no longer a beggar, but what the scribes do, what the Pharisees do, Right? Instead of falling to their knees and worshiping Jesus as their Savior, as their Messiah, they got mad. They flew into a rage. And they started making plans. Isn't this unbelievable? That they're going to kill the guy that just healed this man and gave him life. They're going to kill the Son of God. Dang. Dang. So, knowing their plans, Jesus withdrew from that synagogue on his own volition. And then Matthew does something pretty interesting here. Uh, rather than staying with all the drama between the Pharisees and and Jesus here, I mean, we can only handle so much Jerry Springer show at one time, right? And that's and that's what's going on. It's the Jerry. You just gotta, you know, you just click the off button. You can only digest that craziness uh, for so long. So Matt, our gospel writer, he takes a break. He shows us that Jesus is not only the king of kings, but he's also a servant leader. In fact, he's not just a servant leader. He is the perfect servant. So Matt points us to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in uh, verses 15 through 21. And those words that he penned, Uh, actually that were penned by Isaiah, they were written five to seven hundred years before Jesus was even born. And then finally we discuss the accuracy and the reality and also the, the mathematical odds of not only that prophecy being fulfilled, but also the others as well. Well, today we're going to learn one of the biggest lies that the scribes and the Pharisees have ever told about Jesus Now, we've heard this lie in passing before, but today Jesus not only addresses and denounces the lie, but he also changes his entire ministry strategy because of it. And we're going to see here in in Matthew chapter 13, he starts teaching in parables. Jesus starts preaching so nobody can understand what he's talking about. You ask the so called experts on church growth if that's a great strategy, and they're gonna say what? No. No, that's a horrible strategy. But that's what Jesus does. Have you guys ever been lied to? Yeah. Yeah. How'd it feel? How'd it feel to be lied to? Doesn't feel very good, does it? What if the lie itself has eternal consequences? What if that lie that someone told you impacts your salvation? What if it disrupts your faith in Jesus? There are many, many lies about Jesus that people believe today in our culture. One of the biggest lies is that Jesus wants you to be healthy, happy, and wealthy. It's called the prosperity gospel. And guys, please know that's not true. Jesus... Wants us to be holy and see from his holiness, everything else flows. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Jesus also wants the Pharisees to be holy. But these men refused the truth. To hear the truth, they just would not listen. And because they didn't listen, the scribes and the Pharisees, they would rather listen to the lies. The lies that they made up instead of the truth. So the question before us is this. We're going to learn about the scribes and the Pharisees lying about Jesus, but are we doing the same thing today? Are we believing a lie that we've heard or someone's been telling us or we've been taught in the past about Jesus? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand now for the reading and the honoring of God's word. If you would, please raise your voice with me as we read this text together, starting in verse 22. The words are going to be on the screen for us. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and unable to speak, was brought to him. He healed him, so that the man could both speak and see. All the crowds were astounded and said, Could this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul... By whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. It's a big passage today, guys. And we just read the words that are authoritative in our lives. They are infallible. They are inerrant. They are inspired. They are everything to us. I pray that we hear them as such. Father, the psalmist writes, How happy is anyone who has put his trust in the Lord? and has not turned to the proud or to those who run after lies. Father, we pray that you would teach us about lies today. Separate the truth from the lies, and please do so with grace and truth, and truth and grace. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Thank you, guys. All right, verse 22, let's take a look here. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him so that the man could both speak and see. So this poor man was possessed by a demonic spirit, and this demonic spirit overtook this man. He took control of his body. Demons are fallen angels. They, aren't, they are under the leadership of Satan who rebelled against God. Angels were originally created to worship and to praise and to serve God. Fallen angels, on the other hand, they've got a similar function, but a different master. Their allegiance is to Satan. Satan means adversary. The devil, it means slanderer. Jesus called Satan the father of lies in John chapter 8. So a demon's purpose is to carry out the schemes of Satan and to oppose God. And they do that by tempting, by deceiving, by lying to people. Unfortunately, many Christians today don't believe in the reality of Satan, demons, or hell. And that's a bit strange because Jesus certainly does, and that's what Scripture teaches, Some Christians tend to think that living in our our modern culture, our modern world, and that those teachings are just that old belief system, right? Because we're just, we're too scientifically sophisticated for Satan, right? We got Google. We got an iPhone. Who needs Satan? And Satan loves that, by the way. Satan loves the fact that people are deceived, especially people who call Jesus their Lord and their Savior. Are there demon-possessed people walking around today? Absolutely. Many, many times our, our sophistication, what we do is we diagnose these people as mentally ill and we just put them in institutions. Now, the world loves Satan. The world loves demons, they love death, Uh, The world offers best-selling books and TV shows and movies, not only about demons and Satan, but wizards and witches and vampires. All these things that are are demonic and evil. So the world, think about this now, the world tends to overemphasize the demonic, but there's a greater danger when Christians underemphasize and we underestimate these, these things, the spiritual world. And we need to take seriously what Paul says, the apostle Paul. Let me show you this. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. He says He says, "Look, guys, I want you to put on the full armor of almighty God." Why, Paul? Why do you want us to do that? So that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle today, guys, is not against people. It's against the rulers. It's against the authorities. It's against the cosmic powers of this darkness. And look at this. He said, it's against evil. The spiritual forces in the heavens. So our true struggles, our true battle in this life, they are not visible. So the Apostle Paul, he takes Satan seriously. So does our Lord Jesus. Luke 10 18, Jesus says, Hey guys, he's talking to the disciples, right? He says, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What's Jesus talking about? Isaiah 14 12, the prophet writes this Shining morning star. In your Bibles, there, right? Lucifer. Lucifer means star. He says, Oh, how you have fallen from the heavens. You destroyer of the nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, look at this, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. Wow, the audacity. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But here's the reality in verse 15. God says, no, you won't. (laughs) No, you won't. You will be brought down to Sheol, that's hell, and not only will this uh, Satan be brought down to hell, look at this, into the deepest regions of the pit. That is the most severe place of judgment. So all that to say this, demons are personal, they are immortal, and they are incapable of reconciliation with God because they've already been judged. Now until that time of judgment, they do have tremendous power a power that we do not have. So as disciples of Jesus, we just, we can't read this passage guys and ignore the reality of Satan because that's what we're talking about today. We're not, we're talking about Satan and demons. Verse 22, a demon possessed man who was number one, he was blind and number two, he was unable to speak. He was brought before Jesus. Keep in mind, demons hate God. Therefore they hate his creation, especially people. Because people are created in the image of God. So this this man is in an awful state. Now we don't know why. We don't know how this, this man was possessed by a demon. But what we do know is that he can't see and he can't talk. So in other words, this man can't even ask for help. He can't even find help because he's blind. So someone brings this man to Jesus, verse 22. And what's Jesus do? He heals him. So that the man could both speak and see. So Matt, our gospel writer here, he gives us zero information on how Jesus did this. Um, We don't know how this man responds either. It's pretty interesting because Matthew usually says that Jesus cast out the demons. That's the terminology. Jesus cast him out. Uh, But what Matthew does here, he seems to redirect our attention to the crowd's response instead. Look at this, verse 23. All the crowds were astounded, and they said, could this be the son of David? Now why would Matt focus on the crowd's reaction? Jesus had previously healed blind people, and then on a separate occasion, Jesus also healed a mute person. So what's so special? What's so unique about this healing? Well, it's this. This is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus heals a person with both disabilities at the same time. This man is both blind and deaf. Now, reading through the Gospels, we know that demon possession was really not that unusual in the first century. However, when we hear that term demon possession today, we tend to roll our eyes, don't we? We tend to make jokes. We tend to deflect, maybe change the subject. Not so back then. And because of that, even the Pharisees had exorcists. However, their method of exorcism, very, very different than that of Jesus. They had a, really a systematic procedure that they went through to cast out a demon. They believed the Jewish exorcist, the Pharisaic exorcist, they believed that you had to establish some kind of communication with the demon um, before you could cast him out. So one of the questions that they usually had was, what's your name? What's your name? Remember, Jesus even did this one time, speaking to a man who had a legion of demons. It's interesting that the, the demons didn't answer Jesus. They didn't give him his name. They gave him a title. They gave him a number. We are legion. We are many. That was supposed to intimidate Jesus. But the problem that the the Pharisaic exorcists had was that they could never cast out a demon from a mute person because they could never establish the communication with, with the demon. Jesus doesn't need to establish communication though, does he? He only commands the demons to obey and they do. And that's what happened. So Jesus heals this man. This man can now speak and he can and he can hear. L- verse 23. Look at the response of the crowds. They were astonished. They were astounded. They were amazed. The scene here is that they just go nuts. These guys go bonkers. They are in complete amazement and wonder. They were literally knocked out of their senses by this miracle. They just could not believe it. It is so overwhelming. So what did Jesus do here? At this moment, Jesus intentionally intensified his supernatural power to demonstrate to the crowd who he is, that he is God. So the crowd, they start asking questions, don't they? They said, could this be the son of David? The son of David, it points to Jesus' genealogy, which we studied way back in Matthew chapter 1. So Matt opens his gospel with the genealogical proof that Jesus, in his humanity now, uh, was a a direct descendant of Abraham and David through Joseph, who is is Jesus' legal father. And primarily that title there, very important, the son of David, it's more than a statement of, of physical genealogy. It's a messianic title. It means that, that the, this, this is the person that the Jews have been waiting for. This is the deliverer. He is the fulfillment that we looked at a couple weeks ago of all the Old Testament prophecies. So this was not a cynical question from the crowd. It's a sincere question. They want to know. Because what, what's starting to happen now, now keep in mind, these guys listened to the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the authorities. They were the religious leaders. And they've been telling these, the, the, the Jews that this, this guy is not the Messiah. But after this miracle, look, they start to, start to think for themselves a little bit. They just saw this happen. And they wondered, wow, could we really be in the presence of the Messiah, this guy that we've been waiting for? I think it was tough for them to wrap their brains around that fact. That this gentle, compassionate teacher, this healer, that he could indeed be their savior. Everybody was expecting this warrior and this king to come and free them from Roman Impression. And Jesus is going to do that the second time around. Verse 24. So the crowd says, hey, could this be the son of David? Pharisees jump in now. Well, wait, wait, no, 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 no. When the Pharisees heard this, when they, when they heard the questions, if this were a movie, you would start to hear that ominous music, right? <laughs> It'd start to come up because the Pharisees are bad guys. These are evil men. And they said this, this man, this guy over here, see, that's distancing language. We're going to keep him at an arm's length distance. He's not with us. He's different. This man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, who is the ruler of the demons. Now, this is the same response. Really, it's an excuse uh, from the Pharisees that we've heard before. We've heard it in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 10, and we hear it again in Matthew chapter 12. See, the Pharisees view Jesus not as messianic, but rather demonic. And this is important. Because the Pharisees, they, they don't deny the reality of Jesus' miracles. What do they do? They attribute those miracles to Satan instead of God. Hmm. Hmm. See, the Pharisees, they're, like, they're not like the, the liberal theologians today. They, liberal theologians today, they're kind of nice people, and they say nice things about Jesus. They'll say, you know, he's the greatest moral teacher who ever lived. And yet, at the same time, they deny Jesus' miracles, and they're trying to rewrite history. On the other hand, the Pharisees, they've seen Jesus' miracles. With their own two eyes, they don't deny them ever. So they're not challenging the reality of what Jesus did here, but in fact, they're committing the same sin as our liberal theologians do today. They're lying about Jesus. So the Pharisees, they start to panic a little bit, and they say that Jesus is empowered by Satan himself, Beelzebub. That's not a very nice thing to say, is it? Have you ever gone up to someone and called them Satan? I hope not. Who is Beelzebub? Who's this Beetlejuice character? Beelzebul. Sometimes it'll be translated Beelzebub or Baalzebub. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Beelzebub is first mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 1, King Ahaziah. He was worshiping this false god named Beelzebub. Now, we don't know what happened to the etymology. We don't know what happened to the spelling. But this false god got turned into a reference for three things. Number one, it started off as the Lord of the flies. Isn't that good? And some people say that Jewish people don't have a sense of humor. That's pretty funny. A few years later, it got turned into Lord of the dung pile. How would you like to be Lord of a dung pile? And then it eventually turned into Satan, a reference to Satan and his demons. Um, Here's the thing. We've got religious men calling Jesus a demon or Satan himself. Now just pause for one second. I want you to wrap your brain around that. Religious men calling God Satan. Why? Why are they doing this? Well, because Jesus is not in their camp. He keeps healing people. He keeps saving the lives of people and teaching the truth. How sad that the religious leaders in the first century couldn't have been more wrong. These guys have been studying God's word all of their life, and yet they miss the living word that is standing right in front of them. So after hearing this repeated accusation, Jesus finally addresses it. Um, being called Satan, obviously that's a pretty severe charge, especially when you're the son of God. In the Old Testament, if you, um, you practice magic, if you used uh, any kind of, of Satan's power in any way, that was a capital offense. They would kill you for that. They would literally throw large stones and rocks at your head until you're dead. That's how serious this accusation is. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts. Knowing their thoughts. How surprised do you think the Pharisees were when they realized that Jesus could read their minds? I bet their eyes got this big. Knowing their thoughts... So the idea here is that the Pharisees, they were deep within the crowds. Keep in mind, these are large crowds, huge crowds, possibly thousands of people. And and these Pharisees are tucked away and they're they're out of earshot. So Jesus can't hear them physically, but he can hear them supernaturally. So now we've got a teachable moment to unteachable people. Look at verse 25. Jesus told them, every kingdom... Divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. So if you're a logical thinker in here this morning, if you consider yourself a rational person, you are going to love this passage. Notice the words that Jesus uses, divided, destruction, and divided. For any institution there must be unity. There's got to be unity and not division among its people. A city government, it has to be united for it to be a strong city government. Have you guys been to a school board? Have you been to a, a city council meeting? It's ugly. Division is a wicked, wicked thing in our city. A united business When the boss and the employees are on the same page, that's a good thing, right? You serve customers well. Have you ever walked into a restaurant where the cooks and the servers are fighting? You better get up and walk out and find another restaurant. You don't want to eat that food. A united church. That is a strong church. Have you ever been part of a church split? Wicked, awful, awful thing. Your family. Think of your family. A united family is a strong family. It's awful how one person in the family, one child, it ruins a family get-together. It only takes one. And we know all these things, right? And that's why Jesus makes this point about division. He goes on to say in verse 26, he says, all right, guys, look, if Satan drives out Satan, He is divided against himself. How's this kingdom going to stand? In other words, why would Satan perform this amazing, beautiful, healing miracle that saves this man's life and then at the very same time cast the demon out who first afflicted this man? That makes no sense at all. So Jesus is asking the Pharisees here, look, let's slow down. Let's, some, let's use some logic. Let's use some common sense. Let's, let's just use the basic rules of logic. So Jesus is basically saying, look, you guys are being absurd. Don't be absurd. Satan is way too smart to undermine his own kingdom. He's not going to do that. Yes, Satan is, is wicked, but he is not dumb. He's not going to do that. He would be destroying his own work if he cast himself out. Same thing. If Satan uses Jesus to drive out his own demons, Satan still loses. And Satan is not going to set his demons against one another either. Verse 27, Jesus continues. He says, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, Satan or demons, by whom do your sons drive them out? So Jesus, again, he uses a a hypothetical Uh, situation here to make a point. So in other words, let's assume, Jesus is saying, let's assume, guys, that you're right and I'm wrong. And I'm casting out demons because I've got Satan's power. If that's true, by whom and by what power do your sons cast out their demons? That phrase, they're your sons, it's referring not so much to biological sons, but students and disciples. Because once again, the the Jews had their own exorcists. They were Pharisaic exorcists. And they were trained. So he's asking how that's possible. Now some Jewish exorcists, they they were successful, and some of them were not. So Jesus is asking here, by whose power did they cast out the demons? Are they using God's power, or are they using Satan's power? Now, there's a great story to illustrate this. Acts chapter 19, verse 13, you thought I wanted to rent the DVD before? I want to see this one for sure, too. <laughs> Acts 19, 13, look at this. Now, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, so these guys traveled from town to town casting out demons. They also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those uh, who had evil spirits. And what they were saying is, so this is new for them. They would say something like, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. That's a sermon and a sermon. We'll keep going. The seven sons of Sceva, Sceva is a Jewish high priest. They were doing this. So verse 15, so, the, so they're, they're, they're saying this, I command you by, by the Jesus that Paul preaches to come out of him. Now look at verse 15, the evil spirit answered them and he says, huh, you know, I, I definitely know Jesus, no doubt about that. And I recognize Paul, but who are you chumps? <laughs> who are you guys? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on the Jewish exorcist. He overpowers them all. One versus seven. And he prevails against them. So that they all ran out of the house naked and wounded. Mm -mm -mm. And with that illustration. They got sent home to daddy. Daddy. There's just no way those Jewish exorcists, and these are scribes, these are Pharisees, this is their own people, right? There's no way that they're going to say that they are casting out demons by the power of Satan because Satan just took them to school. And Jesus knows this. And he says in verse 27, for this reason, they, your own people, will be your judges, they're going to disagree with you. Those Jewish exorcists would testify against their own scribes and the Pharisees and that would cause division. They are going to side with Jesus because once again, it makes no sense to believe that the Jews were casting out demons with God's power and yet turn around and believe that Jesus was doing the same thing with Satan's power. Verse 28, He says, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So, this verse could literally be translated the kingdom has arrived. So, I want you to picture a train rolling up to the station or a plane that just touched down. That's the picture here. Because Jesus is here, the kingdom of God is here. So, Jesus, he's not even talking about spiritual things, is he? He's talking about logic. He shifts from defending his actions now to actually taking a teaching moment. And he says this, verse 28. He says, if I drive demons out by the Spirit of God, if I do that. So in the Greek, I is emphatic, meaning there's an emphasis on it, right? Jesus is saying, Jesus himself cast out the demons. No one else is doing this. He is. And because he's doing that, he is bringing the kingdom. Secondly, notice here the reference to the Spirit. That points us back to verse 18 a couple weeks ago, where Matthew paraphrases Isaiah. Here it is again, verse 18. The Father says, here is my servant whom I have chosen. He is my beloved in whom I delight. I'm going to put, I, the Father, I'm going to put my Spirit, the Holy Spirit, on him right? The spirit that the father placed on Jesus now empowers him and his earthly ministry. Back to verse 28, he says, if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, the kingdom of God has arrived because I'm here. This is not future. It says has come, right? It's present tense. It is a present reality. God is now among his people. So if the kingdom has come, because Jesus has come, then Jesus must be the king. He must be the Messiah. He must be the Savior. Luke's gospel says it this way. This is good. He says, Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, Jesus is saying, wake up. Wake up, guys. It's so easy for Jesus to do this and cast out a demon, isn't it? He doesn't have to say anything. He just points. Same thing in Genesis 1. When Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, he spoke the creation, the cosmos, the universe into existence. That's easy for him. What's not easy? Saving our sorry souls, isn't it? That took, that took the death of God to accomplish that task. So anyway, Jesus, he completely dismantles the scribes and the Pharisees' argument and lie about him, and he does it through logic. And now Jesus goes on. He makes another illustration here in verse 29. He goes, let me explain this to you, because I can tell you're still not following. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house? So, first things first, Jesus, obviously, He doesn't serve Satan. Jesus conquers Satan. Jesus enters Satan's world through the front door. Jesus doesn't, He doesn't go around the back. He doesn't surprise Satan. He goes right through the front. Keep in mind, Jesus is a warrior. He directly confronts Satan. Yes, Satan's strong. Jesus is stronger. Verse 30 Jesus says, if you don't believe me, okay, so let's say you don't believe me. Anyone who is not with me is against me. So there's no neutral ground with, with Jesus. Either Jesus is your king and your savior and your Lord, or Satan is. If you're not with Jesus, you're against him. If you're not with Jesus, dear friends, please know, Scripture says you're an enemy of God. Romans 5. Now, we, we rarely hear people say that, right? We, we rarely hear people say, well, I'm against Jesus. I hate Jesus. Instead, what they say is, well, you know, I, I really don't believe in Jesus. I don't f- really feel the need for Jesus. Remember that old rock song? Uh, Jesus is my friend. Jesus is just all right. Oh, yeah. That's as close as you're going to get me to singing from the pulpit. Jesus is not just all right. Dear friends, he's he's God. He's Lord. He's Savior. He is King. He's your high priest. He is everything. And if he's not your everything, then he is your judge. He's the one that will judge you for your life. Please know that you don't need to openly oppose Jesus to be against him. All you have to do is just ignore him. Jesus, God, not going to worry about it. So to be with Jesus it means that you you have been chosen by God and therefore called by God. So what do you do when you hear the call? You pray the sinner's prayer? Do you choose God? Do you accept him into your life? Is that what you do? Everybody go like this. No. Those three options are not in scripture. They're not. What is in scripture? We are to believe God. Isn't that beautiful? We are simply to believe what he says in his word. Romans 10:9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. You have turned from death to life. Verse 10, one believes with the heart. What's that do? It results in righteousness. Jesus gives his holiness, his righteousness to you. And then he takes your sin and your shame away. And he cast it as far as the east is from the west. Sounds like Jesus got the raw deal on that, huh? So we can live rightly now. We can love God for who God is and we can love people for who they are. We can live rightly. We can follow his commands. And not only do we wanna follow his commands, guys, we want to. This brings joy to our life. One confesses with the mouth that Jesus is Lord. One confesses our sin, realizing that we are sinners, And we've got no hope apart from Jesus. That's what we confess with our mouths, resulting in salvation. We now have eternal life instead of eternal death. Back to our gospel passage here, verse 30. Jesus says, anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. What's that mean? Well, Jesus is, he's talking directly to us as the church, If we're a disciple of Jesus in here this morning, this this is for us. Our responsibility as the church is to make disciples. We are to fulfill the Great Commission. If we're not sharing Jesus day by day, then what are we doing? We are scattering the flock instead of gathering them together in unity. Now, this also could be a reference and an illustration to harvest time in the first century for the farmers. The idea uh, is that the church gathers people to God in a very similar fashion to when they were gathering crops at harvest time. But if we're not doing that, if we're not doing that, it's not that we're doing nothing. It's that we're, we're having the opposite impact on people, right? We're scattering them away from the Lord. So our passage today teaches us the big lie about Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees said that Jesus had supernatural powers because he was either a demon or Satan himself. And I'm just, I'm curious, what lie that, that you're believing about God that simply isn't true this morning? Let me give you a couple examples. Are you believing that, that the Heavenly Father is like your earthly father? It's hard not to believe that. When you hear father, you you picture your your father. Or at least the person that 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 was in your home, maybe a stepfather, maybe it was a parent or grandparent, maybe you were adopted. It's hard not to believe that, but please know that your heavenly father is not like your father figure. My dad was an alcoholic. He loved being in the bars. When when my brother and I would visit him, he would take us to the bar. Why? Because that's where everybody knew his name. So we grew up in the bar. My heavenly father is not like my father. And neither is yours. Do you believe the lie that God is all about religion? Religion. That he wants you to keep all these laws and to keep all the rules and he's got his, p- his finger pointed at you and he's got this scowl on his face. And you just see the anger coming from this heavenly father's white and beard and he's just mad at you. It's all about religion. Do you believe that lie? He's unhappy with you. I mentioned the prosperity gospel before. Let me touch on this again. Do you believe the lie that if you're not healthy, wealthy, and happy, then there there must be something wrong with your faith? Because that's what they teach, right? They teach that if you're not happy, healthy, and wealthy, well, you know what? You don't have enough faith. And guys, I talk about about this a lot. And that is a lie straight from hell. Please don't believe that. This is a big one. This next one is big. Do you believe the lie that God is not involved in your suffering? Do you believe the lie that God is not in the midst of your trials? Do you believe the lie that God is not there on the, the days of uh, the, the darkest of days, do we see these trials as a blessing or curse in our lives? When things go wrong in our life, do we attribute those things to Satan? Are we making the same mistake that the Pharisees did? In other words, many times the thing that God has specifically ordained for you in your life, whether it's illness, whether it's cancer, whether it's financial troubles, whether it's relationship issues in the family or at work or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the very things that God is using to draw us closer to him and conform us to Christ. Christ. See, without the trial, you would not learn and and, and know what he's trying to reveal to you. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. I want to show you a couple passages here. James chapter 1. Verses 2 through 4. The Apostle James says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and my sisters, that whenever you experience various trials, whatever you're going through, because you know that the testing of your faith, it does something. What's it do? It produces endurance and let that endurance have its full effect. Why? Why, James? So that you can be mature and complete and lack nothing. You consider it a great joy what you're going through right now? Skip down to verse 12. Look at this. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You're blessed as you go through your trials. All in favor of blessing? See, we, we, God's ways are so much higher than ours. His ways are so much better than ours. And many, many times we pray against the very thing that God is using in our life to conform us to Christ. We're praying that God would take it away. And God says, I'm not going to take it away. I've specifically designed this so that you can grow up and mature. Do you trust God as much as you say you love him? Isn't that a great question? Do you trust God as much as you say that you love him? There's a great lyric in a a Casting Crowns song, and it goes like this. Uh... Our life, we think our life has fallen apart when it's actually fallen into place. Isn't that good? Maybe you believe that you're not truly saved. Maybe you believe that you're not really forgiven because your sins are just too great, right? They're too serious. Maybe you believe that, there is, that you're not worthy to be saved or worthy to be loved. Oh, and this is a great this is a great lie. Maybe you believe that God is in my political party. <laughs> look, guys, God isn't running for God. <laughs> All right? Joshua chapter 5 verse 13, look that up when you get home. All that to say this and this is this is the the number one key point for us today. That when you're in doubt, Run to the empty, blood stained cross and the empty grave. Amen. When you start to doubt and you got these crazy things going through your head, run. Don't walk, run to the blood stained cross and that empty grave. God the Father has already proved that He loves you, He cares for you by giving you His best, His very Son. The Son of God, if He's already given us His best in this life, then we can endure these trials and these lies that run through our brains every single day. Father in Heaven, thank You for teaching us this passage this morning. Thank You that we have learned about the scribes and the Pharisees and, and their lie about Jesus. And now this week, Lord God, I pray that you would reveal the lies that we believe about your Son. Please show us how these things are lies and how indeed we, we want to make things right with you. Let us confess our sins to you. Let us, let us get right with you and believe the truth. You tell us that the truth will set us free, and we pray that you would do that for us this week, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen, amen Amen and amen.